I have a small confession to make. I've never seen The Princess Bride, but at the risk of inciting mass outrage, I'm going to steal a quote from it today anyway, because it seems too perfect for the episode. It's when Nico Montoya says, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. And today, the word we're talking about is quality. You're listening to the Content Head Podcast with me, Joe Michalowski. Every week I dive into one big idea that's come up in my day-to-day while leading content in B2B SaaS. Listen in for lessons and rants about working through the challenges of being a lean content team in the do more with less environment we all find ourselves in. Thanks for joining me to nerd out about content. Let's get into it. I've noticed something in recent months. Back when I started my content marketing career, there was always constant debate over quality versus quantity. And I was never super interested in that debate, nothing I really wanted to jump into. Uh, But we've seemed to evolve past that debate into something uh, more about what does quality content even mean? And so Amanda Natividad uh, over at SparkToro, she's wonderful, I'm sure. If you're listening to this, you probably follow her already, wrote about this for, for them. And as usual, found a way to turn a really subjective subject into something measurable and concrete. So highly recommend checking out her overview of content quality KPIs. But I kind of want to go in a more existential direction because I think the term quality isn't it's not just a subjective term. It might be the wrong term to be using altogether. So I want to go back to where I was starting my content career. And it's really, you know, I, I came out of school with an English degree. I had no idea what I was doing. And I just needed somebody to pay me to to write because that's what I like to do. And I sought out every expert I could in the field, read books, listen to podcasts, dive into articles, anything I could find to sort of get me up to speed from being somebody who just reads literature and writes papers to somebody who can kind of move that into a a marketing career. Uh, And, you know, it worked out well, but maybe unsurprisingly, that kind of led me to Seth Godin as required reading. And so if you look like over my shoulder, if you're watching the video, there's a, a few books up there by him. But I really dove into his work and, you know, if you're in content marketing, you probably have as well. But there's one concept that always stood out to me from Seth that I want to talk about today. And it's this concept of wabi-sabi. And first of all, I just love the term. So yeah, I wanted to make a whole episode about this just so I could say wabi-sabi a bunch. But also just, it, it's shown up in so many different places that I've seen Seth. And so it was in like his blog and it was in This Is Marketing. It was in other podcasts I've seen him on. Uh, but where it really stuck out to me was when he showed up as a guest or a multi-time guest on one of my favorite podcasts called The Moment uh, with Brian Koppelman. He's a, a screenwriter. He did the show Billions or does the show Billions. I'm not sure if it's actually still running. Did a movie called Rounders. Uh, but he runs a podcast about like creativity. And when Seth showed up, there was kind of like a, a mind meld of two people that I just really enjoy listening to. And so where Seth started diving in was this idea that quality the way we use it is as like, you know, high value or it means like maybe like luxury or something to be to be sought out. And what Seth uh, explained is that quality really just means that something meets specifications. So he says meets spec a lot and it comes from like a, the manufacturing world. And so if you think of cars, the Toyota Corolla or like the Honda Civic, these like cars that, you know, you can drive for hundreds of thousands of miles and they'll never die. They are high quality items. They are churned out at high volumes at scale, um, reliably and consistently because they have very, very tight specifications. And Seth has this whole story about like, you know, uh, matching up like 
the screw size to like the the hole that is drilled at like a mass scale to whole separate topic. So when something meets spec, it is of quality um, as opposed to something like, say, like a hand knit bag that might be like a designer bag, one of a kind. If it's one of a kind, it's not high quality because it doesn't meet spec. There is no spec. And so where he says the difference is that what we're really striving for is this concept of wabi-sabi. And it's this concept, it's Japanese, if you like uh, ikigai, if I'm saying that correctly, another Japanese concept, it it's kind of fits into that mold. But it's the idea that there's beauty in imperfection. And so a lot of that is like in the natural world and like physical, not just products, but just in, in nature. But if we're going to apply it to marketing, we're talking about, you know, much more businessy concept. But the example that Seth has used and that I like, because you know, if you're looking at my background, you'll understand why it's that there's this idea of like a perfectly laid out, you know, bookshelf with brand new books versus my books here at home that are well-worn. They have broken spines. They have crease edges. They have notes in margins. There is a, a beauty to that imperfection is something important to me. And in the context of quality versus commodity content, you want to strive for this concept of wabi-sabi in your, con in your content instead of meeting spec. And so I want to talk a little bit about what that means. And so ultimately, like the, if we're talking about advice, not just like a high level concept, I think it means that we have to inject our content with the unique perspectives and value that your audiences can't find somewhere else. And so like, what is it that gives your content that little bit of something that they won't find elsewhere? That kind of the, the wabi-sabi, the imperfection or the, the uniqueness of your content as opposed to the one from your competitor or your best friend or, you know, whoever it is that's kind of also in your market. Maybe it's your depth of subject matter expertise. So for Mosaic in my job day to day, I have always thought that this was what our like unique differentiator was we just have a lot of people in the company who understand finance topics in a way that you know as as a content marketer you don't always have subject matter expertise unless you're marketing to marketers and so for me like it's it's a boon to have you know former accountants former financial analysts former CFOs former VPs of finance in all of these different roles cuz I can go talk to them and I can inject that into the content so that when somebody is reading it from our audience, they go, oh, wow, like they get me. And so maybe that's not what you have at your company, or maybe that's not what's necessary for your audience. So maybe it's your voice. Maybe you have a unique voice where maybe you're doing sales content to a sales audience that's really inundated with great stuff. And you just have this maybe entertaining sort of angle. Uh, you think of a company like Lavender that's kind of popped up all over the place. They're doing a lot of really great like organic social content. And there's like an entertaining aspect to it that is not present in other brands that, that serve their market in the sales market. Uh, maybe it's the imagery used to explain concepts. So maybe you're really good at d coming up with frameworks and you can have maybe a designer or yourself or somebody on the team who can really kind of like lay out flow charts or something that when like somebody reads that blog post or reads that article or goes through, you know, that social content, you can stop them in their tracks with like a, an image that that really sets things apart. No, this isn't exactly like frameworks, but I think of something like uh, the Marketoon, if you know who that is, Tom Fishburne, you can see stuff from him on LinkedIn. Sometimes he'll, he'll basically just do like little comics that are 
Dilbert-esque, I guess, but he's taken his marketing experience and kind of cartooned his way to unique content or even something like Liz and Molly, if you've seen their really great stuff, just very simple, powerful concepts in images that are like feelings at work. So things like imposter syndrome and things like that. So that is stuff that that really stands out. So even if they're talking about the same concept, it stands out to me because I recognize that and, you know, it's it's unique to them. Maybe it's a data-driven approach. I, I got done listening to this podcast that Devin Reed, former uh, content lead at Gong, now at Clary, has used. And basically they had internal data from their product that nobody else had access to. And so they took that data, they turned it into content just week after week of pumping out this like heavy data-driven content that nobody else was going to be able to have access to. And so again, you know, the, the point here is that there's there's something that you have either within your company or within yourself, whatever your context is, that is going to be able to like be that little drop in the ocean or the lake of your content that makes it stand out from the crowd. Like what's the little like drop of food coloring that you can put in? So instead of just looking like everybody else, you have that like little spot of color. And that kind of like puts you in the direction of really standing out for your audience. And I, I implore you just please be honest with yourself when trying to figure out what this thing is. My my thought is like if you're if you're asking your peers in a company, it's like, okay, what is our unique thing? And a lot of times for a brand, they'll be like, oh, well, it's our unique perspective on the market. And so, you know, for Mosaic, it's like, well, we're not an FP&A platform or a strategic finance platform. And we have this unique sort of brand messaging. And that's great for like the brand as a whole. But if we're talking about the content specifically, I think we need to go deeper than that. So you shouldn't just have articles about financial modeling with, you know, a line that says, but we think you should automate this process as much as possible. Like that is a, a good thesis, like starter, but it's not what's going to make every article feel really unique. Like a lot of people in the market might feel the same way and just say it slightly differently. You don't want to just be saying things slightly differently or even just like being a contrarian for the sake of it. You really need to sit down and, and be honest with yourself about what is unique about your resources or your internal ability to do this. And so I have three things I want to call out that are just kind of like, you know, this versus that as far as, you know, quality versus wabi-sabi goes. And so the first one, I think the biggest place this shows up is SEO content. We hear about copycat content, things like that. So I want you to resist the urge to take a paint by numbers approach to SEO content. Just because there are certain headers you should include in an article doesn't mean you're committed to writing the exact same article that everybody else on page one has done. Uh, if all of your articles are targeting such high volume, high competition keywords that you feel like you need to do that, maybe it's time to dig deeper and look at more long tail, lower volume, you know, more niche keywords or uh, use case based things like that. So, you know, that that's a separate like keyword strategy, SEO strategy con or uh, topic. But I, I experience this all the time. We work with organic growth marketing, OGM. Uh, and when they deliver briefs for, for Mosaic and we have to, you know, create content around them, they don't just say like, hey, here's your five headers for the article. They give us like an outline of potential headers, I'll say. And so we get to mix and match. There's no like prescription of here's the order, here's the exact wording, here's what you need to do. 
because for our strategy, there's more flexibility than that. And so it gives me and anyone I work with like free reign to make the article our own based on what we have for internal expertise. So no paint by numbers, no copycat content, find ways to build that organic engine underneath the content strategy that includes this like wabi-sabi aspect of it. Moving on from SEO content, we'll talk about podcasts. So don't just be a generic B2B interview podcast. And so you might look at Mosaic, where, which you know I run the podcast and we have the roll forward and it is an interview podcast. So it's not like I'm saying don't run an interview style podcast. They're super valuable. They're, they make a lot of sense, especially if you listen to episode one about candy bar content, like an interview style podcast gives you a lot to work with outside of just the actual podcast episode. So what do I actually mean? I mean, figure out how to ask guests questions that they've never heard before. So if you have someone who's been on five podcasts, are you just going to ask them to tell them about your career? No, you don't want to do that. That will just be a generic thing that they've heard a thousand times. Dig into specific topics. Don't just do a sweeping review of their career and their lives and their general career advice. Look at their experience and say, okay, like this person started out as an investment banker and they moved on to an FP&A role and now they're a CFO. So they have a background in, you know, financial modeling, probably they have a background in forecasting forward looking things like, okay, like look at my content calendar. What can I do that is about that? And can I get them to give me like a master class of in-depth knowledge on a specific topic in that realm? Because I know that they've done it for years. Um, and that's how you get people at the end of the podcast to say, oh, wow, like no one's ever asked me that before. And that's, uh, to me, uh, when I, everyone, anyone says that to me, it, it makes me feel pretty good as an interviewer. Uh, and it makes content better. So wabi-sabi check for podcasts. Uh, and the last thing I'll say, it's not necessarily within the realm of one content type, but I just say embrace things that don't scale. Like Toyota has quality cars because they need to pump them out at massive scale and they need everything to be on specification. Your content probably doesn't need to do that, especially if you're in like an earlier stage startup environment like where you kind of have just a blank slate that you need to build from scratch and even if you're a little bit more mature like you might might feel like you need to do that like it's just this constant race for more but i just urge you to to avoid feeling like it's just an effort to pump out content for the sake of it there is no doubt that there is huge value in producing a high quantity of content you don't need to sink weeks of your time into a single piece of content just in the name of this like wabi-sabi con- concept. So don't get caught up in the relentless pursuit of scale. That, that's really all I'm saying. Don't get caught up in that. Get caught up in kind of putting your spin on it while kind of keeping the engine going. It's a balancing act. And so what I want to get to last, as always, is just a few key nuggets from this whole sort of explanation. And so first summary, I'll just say, start thinking more about Wabi Sabi and less about this vague concept of quality content. Combine sort of this high level philosophical Wabi Sabi idea with the super tactical and strategic, really concrete area of expertise of Amanda focusing on driving the right KPIs from her article for Spark Toro. You'll get really far if you can find a balance there. 
second key nugget I'll say is like, as Jay Akunzo would say, if you're listening to him, it's about resonance over reach. Build your content strategy with specific guidelines for how you will make resonance happen. What are the things that you are going to lean on to make your content unique so that it resonates with your audience, not just reaches the most people and then they forget about it tomorrow? It's not just a list of channels and a path to scalability. It's a path to resonating with an audience so much that they come back to buy from you if you are you know, B2B company selling tech. And then the third thing I'll leave you with is perfection is a myth. This idea of wabi-sabi content, this idea of you know, better than just vague quality, it has to exist alongside a willingness to just keep shipping. The wabi-sabi concept is a Japanese worldview. It is a you know, end state that you'll probably never get to. It's a, a philosophy, really, not a box to check in your content strategy. And so those, those are really the three things I want to leave you with. Did I make a whole episode of this podcast just so I could say wabi-sabi, I don't know, 15 times? Yes, I did. Maybe you think it's semantics, wabi-sabi versus quality. I think we all have a general idea of what we mean by quality. But I thought I've really enjoyed this wabi-sabi idea whenever I've heard it from Seth Godin. And I thought it would be good to, to share with everyone. So hope you enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Content Head Podcast. One thing before you go, I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's topic. Send a note to contentheadshow at gmail.com and let me know what's on your mind. And if you liked the episode, be sure to follow Content Head wherever you listen to your podcast. I'll see you on the next one.